Hey everybody, Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. So glad that you are tuning in today. We have a very uh, special guest, guy by the name of Nate Collins, who has be uh, quickly become a friend and somebody who's doing some very, very interesting things um, in culture and in, in the kingdom. And so, Nate, hello. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Hey, Mike. Good to be here. Nate, I, uh, I, I first heard... Uh, and it was several months ago. It was it was towards the beginning, uh, late spring, beginning of summer, about a conference that you were putting together called Revoice, and right. it, it started blowing up on my social media feeds a little bit. Can you tell us? And this is where I kind of discovered your work and what you were doing, and and how great a conversation partner you would be. Uh, tell us a little bit about what that conference was, who it was for, and what it was like. Yeah. Uh, so the conference was a, a three and a half day event. Uh, actually, no, two and a half day event. Uh, it was here in St. Louis, Memorial Presbyterian Church, uh, a PCA church local here in St. Louis hosted it. Uh, about 475 people attended, including about 50 volunteers. And this was the first one, right? The very first one. We yeah. sold out five weeks before the awesome. conference started. Um, had a waiting list, 100 people long. It was it's a lot of fun. Um, and the, the goal of the conference was to support, encourage, and empower Christian gender and sexual minorities so they can flourish while adhering to historic preaching, Christian teaching about marriage and sexuality. Okay, hold on, hold on. That's a lot a, of fact in there, right? <laughs> exactly. Holy cow. So let's go through that slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, put that put that in terms that that like I would understand. Sorry, that's so that's that's basically our mission statement. Um, the target audience for Revoice is Christians who either experience some form of same-sex attraction would potentially also identify as gay or lesbian mm-hmm. or bisexual. Um, but also, we, we want people who experience gender dysphoria and in other forms of uh, just different ways that people experience their gender and sexuality. And mm-hmm. so, But also, who adhere to a historic Christian teaching about gender, marriage, and sexuality. So which which is one man, one woman in a covenant of marriage life that's right mm-hmm. oh my goodness yeah. so 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 that engendered uh pun intended lots <laughs> of criticism from all sorts of uh quarters uh, well it's interesting it, it, it not really all sorts of quarters oh okay uh, we registered some some people's uh, radar who are, are the more progressive mindset um and uh you know but a lot of us who are both involved in this ministry have uh, contacts and people that we know and consider to be friends in that um from that i guess area of north american evangelicalism if you want to call it evangelicalism Mm -hmm. Uh, but we actually got a lot of criticism from conservatives uh, because of language we use on our website because of ways some of us talk about ourselves and and Mm self-identify um which was unfortunate because at the very end of the day, we believe the same things about sexual ethics and right. about what marriage is. Um, we just have things we want to say and points we want to make about how Christianity can be livable for those of us who are gay or same-sex attracted oh or transgender dysphoria. So that's yeah. in a nutshell what we were about. We wanted to, to give uh, conservative LGBT, if you want to use that acronym, um, Christians of place where they could come and gather and be loved on and supported in their choices to make and continue to make uh, good choices and live out a costly obedience. What, what's your story? Um, I, I mean, what, what, how did you arrive? How did you arrive at a place where you're throwing that kind of conference? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm gay, and that's something I've been open about for about twelve years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, everybody, just about a lot of people's, you know, stories sound pretty similar. You you hear them say that they knew early on that they were different, mm-hmm. didn't quite know what that difference meant because you know we're not always. Yeah. We should be sexualized as little kids, but I remember mm-hmm. feeling as early as six years old that I was different. I was drawn to male beauty, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing sexual about that at first. Um, yeah. And then I became a teenager and the hormones flood the brain and those neural pathways get charged. Uh, that's when I realized that that uh, this was a sexual thing for me as well. Mm. And um, for me personally, I... So I grew up in, in a third world country. My parents were missionaries, and mm. I was a child of the '80s and early '90s. And so, throw those two things together, and and I, you basically get a context that's very sheltered. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, did you ever talk to them about this, about what was happening? Not until I came out to my dad when I was 19. Okay. Um, one of the first people I came out to. My dad's always been one of my best friends, uh, mm. especially from my teenage years on. And uh, so, yeah, I told him when I was 19. Um, Went to Bible college in Chicago in uh, 2000 when I was 20 years old. And actually, I, so I, I'm married. Um, that's another wrinkle, I guess. Married um, to? To a woman. Oh, wow. That's the only. That's that bad. is a wrinkle. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, we can go there later if you like. Uh, there, there are non-straight people who do find themselves wanting to pursue opposite sex marriage for mm-hmm. whatever reasons. Just whether it's just they'd always hoped and dreamed of one day having a family or a spouse. And, and a lot of times what ends up happening is you begin being drawn to the person and not necessarily the gender of that person. Hmm. So for me, I met my wife um, first week in college and knew immediately that she was uh, a wonderful person, a very godly person, beautiful and, and someone that I could see myself pursuing in the future if if I felt like God was leading me in that direction. And long story short, that's what ended up happening. <laughs> oh my goodness. Now, when, when but, you're... Go I want to make clear, uh, and this has this uh, happens a lot, unfortunately. Um, just because marriage is what was God's calling for my life does not mean that it is in any way uh, should be normative for uh, non-straight people. Lots of non-straight people have zero desire to pursue the opposite sex marriage. Hmm. Um, and for me, and for my part, I can't fathom what it would be like to be intimate with any woman besides my wife. It just grosses me out to think about that. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I have a, a more or less latent, below-the-surface default, in a sense, if you want to use that word, gay orientation. But I also have a, a, what I just refer to as a, a parallel track of a one-woman orientation. Got it. Yeah, that's – yes. Wife. Um, and we've been married 14 years, have three kids, and our marriage looks different from some marriages, but also mm. probably remarkably similar, just in the, the boring mundaneness of domestic life. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, when, you were, when you were a teenager in a, a missionary home, mm-hmm. um, what, what was your faith doing while your body was doing all these other wonderful things? Oh, man. Um, my faith was very much an outward thing. It mm. was very much a, I was performance driven leader in the youth group, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I was ignoring my orientation. It was, 
out of sight, out of mind, put it as far behind me as I could. <clears throat> Cause I did not want to deal with it. Yeah. Oh. Um, didn't want to come to terms with it. I, the same time, you know, I, because my life, my background looks so different from, I think the way a lot of people are, are today, especially, um, are having to come to terms with their faith and their sexuality. I, I, it, one thing that happened did not happen for me that I think a lot of people have to work through today is what does this mean about my faith? What does my orientation mean about what I've been taught to believe about Christianity and about sexual ethics and about whether or not someone who has these desires can go to heaven? Hmm. Um, why, I, why do you think you were spared that? Uh, I, I don't know, honestly. Hmm. <laughs> Um, I never had a faith crisis, for example. I ne- and, and by faith crisis, I mean both kinds, uh, questioning Christianity or also questioning the traditional sexual ethic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think maybe one of the reasons that that, that didn't happen back then is because there were no loud, compelling voices telling me that I could pursue a same-sex marriage and still be a Christian, still be even an even, evangelical Christian. You know, mm-hmm. there's lots of different voices that are um, – part of the conversation today that we're not even on the radar back then. Right. So it's, it's a very different ball game. And uh, I think that means that something like revoice is even more necessary because so much of the, um, so many of the compelling pieces of the new narrative are precisely that, that you can revise and adopt a tradition, a, a progressive sexual ethic and still mm. uh, be a Bible believing uh, Christian, I. It's hard because I have friends that I consider to be dear friends who are in that camp, mm-hmm. and me too. Uh, yeah, and so there's there's just a lot of tension that you have to work through uh, to to still have a loving and um, compassionate and and humble, very humble uh, stance towards people you disagree with. But right. yeah, so so at nineteen, uh, came out to your dad. Twenty, you're going to Bible college, right? Where yep. was where was that? Uh, I went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Okay. So for those of you that don't know, incredibly conservative. Yes. Um, yeah. They put the, they put the con in conservative. No, no question about it. And were you open at all uh, about what was happening with you uh, during those times? Not early on. Um, but honestly, I was, I was there for three years and, uh, beginning in the second year, I began opening up a whole lot more. And by the end, by the time I graduated, I would say about 50, 60 people knew. Um, I was engaged to Sarah by the time we graduated mm-hmm. as well. And then, um, I've always just been an kind of an open, transparent person about stuff. And, uh, it was one of those things that eventually if I was getting to know you eventually it was going to come out just because I was going to make a reference to my experience as a non-straight person. Yeah. It was relevant yeah. to something in conversation. And so, I mean, that's, that's basically one reason why we decided to just be more public, um, Sarah and I did about 12 years ago. Uh, there's a, was a, we were at a church that had a, a testimony series on Wednesday evenings and I just shared my testimony. And at that point we were, I was in seminary at Southern seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. And, uh, which is, which is another, another the con, very conservative. Yeah. And at that point I became the only open non-straight person on campus. And hmm. that remained the same way for 12 years until I graduated. I was the only, non-straight person who was open about their orientation on campus. I knew plenty of people who were not straight. <laughs> yeah. um, none of them felt 
they could be uh, transparent about that and be out, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, was, and I don't blame them. It wasn't easy. Um, so. And so, so you were pursuing your doctorate? Ma- master was it bachelor's master's doctorate is that what the 12 years was uh no so the the 12 years was uh six years of mdiv and then a oh. year off and then seven years of phd but in that during that time my wife got her ma in counseling uh she got she got licensed which is i like to compare to another doctorate in a sense uh, more of a doctorate of ministry maybe just all the extra stuff you have to do too yeah and we had three kids so there's a lot of life we packed into boy no kidding that time yeah glad to be through that season (laughs) what what was it like for you um if i if i can ask and be as specific or general as whatever you like during the 12 years there so you're in the in these i would imagine pretty robust theological conversations culture's exploding with conversation around this and you're five years yeah you're openly gay Mm -hmm. um and openly identifying excuse me well no i that's okay I never publicly identified as gay until after I graduated from Southern. Oh, I okay. I mean, that's part of the tension of existing in a really conservative space as a as a gay person, a non-straight person. Um, yeah, so I mean, what, what that was like, uh, on the one hand, I you, you, you kind of have to learn to be resilient, have thick skin, um, but at the same time, that that's a cost, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, when I was looking at PhD programs after having been out at Southern for about four years, finishing up my MDiv, I was looking at PhD programs and thinking, um, where would I want to go where I could actually feel more open and more free to just talk about my experience in terms that were meaningful to me um, instead of sort of the cookie cutter terms that mm-hmm. I've been handed by my tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, we decided to stay at Southern um, because I knew I wanted to impact the, the conversation that was being had in traditional evangelical theology. And um, I, I just figured a, a degree from a conservative seminary, <laughs> one that actually matched my beliefs. I mean, I'm my belief structures match up very closely with what schools like Southern and, and others uh, teach and promote. Um, so, you know, at the time, it felt like some, a good decision. I mean, looking back, it definitely felt like a, we were making a much bigger sacrifice than we um, mm-hmm. had an idea or that we knew we were making at the time. Uh, we would never have known that the conversation was going to accelerate so quickly, that a, a burger fell was going to happen in 2015, yeah. um, that, uh, that people were going to be talking about how even experiencing same-sex attraction itself is, going, is sin. Like, that's, that's a thing that was not even on the radar um, when we first decided to stay at Southern. And, and now it's a, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a thing. It's, it's a thing. It's a belief people have for, for some reason, even though a lot of people that have initially promoted that, um, I, I don't understand how they can get that. Um, anyway, that's another conversation. It's, in my book and elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what was your theological work around, particularly your doctorate? What were you, um, mm. you know, that, that makes sense that you would want credibility on the conservative side. So you, you stay at Southern, mm-hmm. but what were you working on? So I was initially, <laughs> I was initially going to write on a new covenant ethic of homosexuality. 
and just jump right in there. Um, and for a number of reasons, that actually ended up changing. Uh, uh, I ended up writing a much drier, much uh, interesting uh, dissertation. I wrote about the social identity of virgins in First Corinthians 7 and their Jewish and Greco-Roman background. All right. Now give it to so, me like we're just talking at Starbucks or something. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's awesome. That's a great title. Yep, that's yeah, that is the title. <laughs> oh, perfect. What but what were you what were you seeking to show? So what I wanted to do was uh, do some really heavy academic uh, heavy lifting in my dissertation that would prepare the conversation that I wanted to have about gender and sexuality today. That would lay the lay the framework for that. And so in my dissertation, I talk about um, what gender is, what sexuality is. And then uh, I zero in on the experience and the, the the function really of the label virgin back in in Jewish and Greco-Roman times. And what I do is I suggest a distinction between primary gender identity and secondary gender identity. Primary gender identity being uh, intrinsically binary because that's how God created gender originally to be uh, binary, man and woman. Mm-hmm. So man and woman are one's primary gender identities. One of those. And then anytime a category is culturally meaningful enough in a particular society to further specify what kind of man or what kind of woman someone is, then uh, labels will then crop up that sort of index those secondary gender identities. And so to break it down to what virgin means, uh, the category of unmarried female or of, of marriageability, unmarried female sexuality was a big thing back then. Mm-hmm. It was important to know if a woman was a virgin or not, uh, largely for patriarchal and inheritance reasons and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so because of that, the then labels like virgin meant a whole lot more back then than they do today. Mm. Um, we think of 40-year-old virgin or mm-hmm. true love weights, and, and that's <laughs> the extent of our understanding of virginness. Yeah. But it meant a whole lot more back then. And so labels like virgin and widow, hmm. widow is another unmarried state uh, involving a woman's sexuality. And so widow is an, another one. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the word eunuch, yeah, I think. That's is the one I'm familiar with. Yeah. So I think that's another uh, <laughs> secondary gender identity um, that was, uh, I guess, just in, in that culture that meant a whole lot more than, than today, what we would think when we hear the word eunuch. Right. So, virgins and widows were always women. Um, there were no male virgins. Anytime you see the word virgin where it refers to a man, it's the context makes it explicitly clear that this is a man hmm. being talked about. So, because so that category is important back then, but I didn't really want to just end on First Corinthians seven and right. what means about virgins. My my eyes are on the current conversation today and on what orientation means. Uh, concerning one's gender. And so because orientation is a thing today, um, then labels crop up in our culture that index secondary gender identities based mm-hmm. on some orientation and labels being gay, lesbian, straight, bi, uh, those those sorts of things. And so for me, when I hear the word gay and when I use the word gay for myself, I'm using it in the sense of its secondary gender identity. It's purely my orientation. Mm. It refers to, to my orientation. And <laughs> and if successful, uh, that that argument then validates 
But I, I, I think something that, that your critics, that at least on the conservative side, were very much upset by, which was a, a Christian yeah. identifying. Identifying by their sin <clears throat> and making their sin patterns central to their uh, the way their their identity and their right how that pushing away the reality that someone's true identity what's truest about them is that they're a son or daughter of the king right right first corinthians then that is what some of you were that's right the verse i always hear quoted there yeah the, the, so all of those words were all um in first corinthians 6 those were all behavioral words of enduring patterns of like sinful behavior right so when I say I'm gay, that does not have any, um, that says nothing, virtually nothing about my actual behavior that I'm doing. Mm. Uh, it just has to do with uh, the orientation that I have. Got it. So. so so when people would come at you and say, well, okay, you shouldn't, you shouldn't even use the identifier gay. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's your, what's your non-dissertation <laughs> uh, response? I mean, I, there's a number of things. Um, I talk about how people identify as straight all the time. If you ask them why they identify as straight, but the the problem is, is that there's nothing biblical or wonderful about indiscriminate just straightness. It's straightness, right? Yeah. The yeah. the only biblical paradigm for orientation is what I call uni heterosexuality, where you only are sexually attracted and drawn to one person of the opposite sex, whom you're married to in a covenant relationship of marriage. So that is the only holy sexuality pattern of, of whole sexual expression that um, that is sanctioned. And so straightness by itself isn't enough. I, mm-hmm. my book, line of my book, you, straight people don't get partial credit for being straight. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's the case, that's good. Then, uh, then that's one answer I, I, I give. I, I have a long like I, I I think the orientation itself is something that we need to think theologically about. Instead of just taking our cues from culture and, and and basically assuming like everybody else does that it's intrinsically sexual in nature, hmm. um, I don't know if that's too deep where you want to get into. No, that. yeah, absolutely. I because I'm sitting there going, okay, hold on a second, because that's yeah. how I hear it. Yeah, no, I I think it's and it's normal to think of it like that because that's everybody how everybody talks about it. Right. But it's, it's very Freudian, really. You know, Freud was the one who made popular the idea that we're all basically intrinsically sexual beings. Uh, and he takes us in a lot of weird directions, but there's still directions that we're pretty, we, we tend to accommodate in our theology, uh, at least mm. in this conversation. Um, gay people are reduced to their sexuality <laughs> instead of to anything else or other things that might um, be just as informative of what, what gayness is. And yeah. Well, what would some things, of those things be? Yeah, exactly. One of those things, I think the most, what I think is the central part of orientation is the perception and admiration of personal beauty. Mm. So it's not intrinsically sexual. It's just the the pattern in which someone notices and admires and appreciates beauty. And when there's when the when you see that uh, emerge in a pattern of a particular sex, and I think mm-hmm. that's what orientation is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's much more. I think that is much more. It's easier to integrate that kind of an understanding about orientation into a robust biblical anthropology theology of what it means to be human. We're created in the image of God to notice beauty in other image bearers because God is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so it's, and there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's worth, I mean, it's, it's worthy to, to notice beauty and to praise God for the beauty of, of his creation and mm-hmm. including other image bearers. Uh, what, what happens inevitably 
and this is one thing that that um, critics will, will will come back and say is well, well we're, we're sexual beings though so like we're always going to to experience orientation in our sexuality and I will say yes that's true uh, but there's a difference between saying that orientation is intrinsically sexual and saying that it's inevitably sexual hmm. I think orientation is intrinsically perception of beauty but because we're in bodies that are characterized by sexuality then orientation will inevitably also be experienced as a sexual orientation do you so so if somebody were to say um okay it's not sinful but it's disordered it's not Mm -hmm. not god's ideal yep uh what would you what would you say i would say as long as we're specifying that the sexual aspects that we're of orientation that we're talking about are what's disordered and, and not ideal. Then yes, that's, I would agree with that. Okay. But what if they're arguing it's the orientation a- aspect of it? Yeah. So there we're getting into, I think mystery. Okay. We're getting into if, if I'm right and if orientation is not intrinsically sexual, but it is something else, perception of beauty, then what we're asking is, did, is it possible this would have existed pre fall? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's like asking what's it, what would it be like to experience our sexuality in the new creation. I right. don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I I want to <laughs> let mystery be where it is and not claim more than than we can know. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that can result in is tension. Um, but I want to. I think those. It's important because people. That's that's a very real tension that people have. They're up straight and they're trying to figure out how their faith can be meaningful. Totally in an ongoing experience that is not ideal in many ways. Right. Um, we want to know, people like me want to know, how can we say no to sin, but how can we say yes to that which God has redeemed about my experience? And um, those are questions you, you just can't really have if you're just going to foreclose it all and say, nope, orientation right. is wrong and bad and sinful and don't say gay because that means you're tying your new identity in Christ to a piece of your flesh and saying, no, I want to hold on to this. That's no, not what we were doing. So, so what, when you looked around, what, what was it that caused you to say, okay, we need a space to have some of these conversations. What prompted the revoice conference? Wow. Um, I mean, in, yeah. So something like revoice doesn't happen in a vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, North American evangelical, conversations about this topic have been all over the place you know for the past four years five years really so since exodus international shut down five yeah, years that was yeah may of 2013 um there was no just large organization that people could look to for leadership and so <laughs> it's like judges everybody did what was right in their own eyes then and uh you have all these um conferences coming up about the topic of the, the very first erlc conference you know mm-hmm. but i think it's 2015 was on this subject and you know you're also you see as a southern baptist organization but it was interesting to me that they couldn't find a single southern baptist to put on a stage who was non-straight hmm. the four people that they put on the stage are outside the southern baptist convention so that's interesting um so yeah but so conversations are happening um there's an organization or a blog called spiritual friendship Mm-hmm. Is that Wesley Hill? Wesley Hill and Ron Belgal yeah. uh, both founded that, and they that blog has been. I mean, it's been doing double duty. <laughs> it's been working really hard over the past uh, five six years to to point to a robust theological but livable response 
uh, or, or way to participate in the conversation um, while holding to traditional sexual beliefs. Hmm. Um, so, but one of the things that happened last year uh, that was especially personal for me um, was this thing called the National Statement was released. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. We we covered it at least from our perspective. So, okay, well, well, we we're just horribly offended. Yes. So number of problems with the national statement um personally for me the biggest two shortcomings were the language policing mm. that ended up happening mm. uh, in article the denial in article seven yeah uh, it, it brought in this new language of self-conception which was kind of strange um because it didn't really have a history in this conversation mm. and so what's funny is a lot of the participants in the national statement are new thetic counselor, biblical counselor types, you know, psychology is bad. And so it sounds funny that they bring in this term from psychology, self-conception and oh, now we like this. It's helpful. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was hard because of that. What was really hard about it though, was the, you know, if a document can have a prideful posture, this one did. Mm. Um, it was not humble at all. And any way acknowledge because it did not acknowledge in any way how LGBT people have been harmed yeah. by Christians. Yeah. And that's this massive part of the conversation that LGBT people are having themselves already. And yeah. that, um, that Christians demonstrated once more that we were oblivious to the pain and hurt that people have suffered at the hands of Christians. Well-meaning in many, in many ways, some ways not well-meaning. I wouldn't even want to align myself with any, um, yeah. Anyway, so there was no lack of, there's no lack of, uh, it was a lack of repentance, a lack of humility and awareness of that. Um, and it, and again, it, it had this language policing element to it that uh, well, it was to directly go after the spiritual friendship. Movement. It, did, it did. It totally did. People, uh, I've talked to people who signed who somehow don't read it that way, but the vast majority of people uh, see that as a feature, not a bug. Yeah. <laughs> natural statement and so i you know my wife and i we we lived in the belly of the beast so to speak at southern seminary uh which was uh, uh in many ways spearheaded the national statement um denny burke is the president of council for biblical manhood and womanhood he's a professor at the seminary there uh he actually worked on it um in conjunction with uh albert roller and john piper uh, the initial draft um before it got distributed to the people who eventually met up in Nashville to, to hammer out final details. So it was very much a Southern seminary uh, led thing, which really hurt for me as well, because I had spent my entire educational career at Southern seminary um, being an openly non-straight person so that I can participate in these conversations and help point to a better way. Um, And uh, here we were with this document that was signed by people that we were friends with and, um, and couldn't really understand. And, and I think some tried to understand, but at the end of the day, I don't, I don't think many of them still understand what was so hurtful about, about the national, national statement. So, um, about a month or so after that, uh, my wife and I, uh, just sort of come to, and we get out of the fog of, what was happening and, and look around and we figuratively are looking at a battlefield full of wounded LGBT brothers and sisters mm. who were hurt by that and are wondering, is there a place in evangelical Christianity for me? Mm. Um, I, I, I used to think that I could exist and I could sort of carve out a little corner, 
but now I don't even know if that's the case. Um, that's what I've saw people saying and heard people saying. And, and so I thought, you know, what can we do? And I was uh, at a friend's house uh, having bourbon and smokes. And because uh, <laughs> I graduated from Southern Seminary, <laughs> enjoy the, the amber, amber liquid of Kentucky. <laughs> that's and, very important uh, to clarify. Right. Um, anyway, but I was at a, a good friend's house and he was like, Nate, just throw a conference. Call all your friends who are conference speakers because they're your friends and, and throw a conference and say, hey, come, to the, come love on a bunch of hurting LGBT souls who want to know whether or not Christianity is, is an evangelicalism is, is still going to work for them. Mm-hmm. And one thing led to another and this, this conference happened and uh, it was an amazing success. It, it succeeded beyond any of our wildest dreams. Um, just in seeing people's lives mm-hmm. impacted, hearing conversations, um, one of the most humbling things for me, uh, just at the conference, is as the president, someone who started the thing with a lot of help, but a lot of people, I mean, over and over and over, people just came up to me saying, thank you. Hmm. <laughs> like, thank you. And not even followed by thank you for what, but just thank you, because they didn't have words for what they were feeling thankful for. And I barely knew how to respond, because I was just blown away by um, <coughs> just how meaningful it was to so many people. Mm-hmm. Mm. So yeah, it was it was a wonderful thing. So it was it was the blessing of of space within um, the traditional ethic and the mm-hmm. traditional belief structures of evangelical Christianity for those who would ex- either experience some same sex attraction or identify as we, these other things. Yeah, we wanted to. I mean, we. There's always going to be some people in this conversation right now, the way it is going on right now, who are going to be suspicious of LGBT language and conservatives mm-hmm. using that language, including some people who are conservative Christians and experience same-sex attraction. There's lots of people in that category who still themselves would not identify as gay or want to identify as, as a lesbian or, or one of those labels. But we wanted to make the conference something that would be meaningful to them as well. We we don't have an agenda for how people identify. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not our, that's not our goal. Our goal is not to have this mass conversion of people to, you know, all of a sudden identify as gay or like, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah. Um, we want to just a place for people to exist and, and acknowledge that their orientation was real and, and, and to be supported in whatever decisions they wanted to make about how open to be about their orientation. It's mm-hmm. exhausting to live as an openly gay person in conservative evangelical circles. Oh, I can't imagine. It's exhausting. Yeah. And you, to, to do something like that without support, without um, being in a community that you can retreat to, in a sense, not because it's the truest form of Christianity or anything like that, but because it just feels safe. I think ideally those should always be our churches, but until the churches are safe enough for that, then it's just going to be at a, in a space with other LGBT people. What are the what are the criticisms, if you received any, of of the progressive side of the conversation that has that argues that yeah you can hold a progressive sexual ethic and still adhere yeah. to all the teachings of evangelical Christianity? I think the one common criticism we received from progressives, and um, which I still don't understand, um, well, it was basically saying this is just ex gay theology warmed over mm-hmm. for a new a new era. 
um, which is not the case at all. Because and by ex-gay, they mean do all these things, go to this support group, learn to see these truths in your life and your past, and you will once you come to terms with them, you'll experience a degree of healing, and that looks like getting married. Hmm. So, like that's the general ex-gay narrative that was that dominated um, hmm. evangelical conversations about this topic for forty years. <laughs> yeah, and so I mean there's a number of things that we need to recognize there. Like that's our history, mm. whether we like it or not. <laughs> like the ex gay years are our history as North American evangelicals, people who are trying to think theologically about the, the issues of our day. And for that, that we need to own that as our history. We need to, to recognize that that has ramifications today. And so one of those ramifications are, is there's a lot of people who are hurt by that kind of narrative. Hmm. And so they're going to look at something like Revoice, and that many did, and see a lot of similarities and say, well, this is just ex-gay theology formed over. Yeah, because here you are, you're married, you have three kids, you yeah. know, you've, you've, you're not exactly a trailblazer in uh, evangelical circles in terms of holding the ethic, right? Because you hold the traditional ethic. Yeah, yeah. And and here you are, you're married. I mean, aren't you subtly reinforcing the? Yeah, you know, it's really not not, not many of them pointed to me being married per se. Um, and 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 honestly, like, I won't like if, if people ask like if churches ask me to come share my testimony, I just tell them no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am not going to go and share my testimony at a church because I know how many people will use it to uh, as a weapon to against other people who you know are also non-straight, but to say, hey, look, this guy did it. I want to work for you. Exactly. So I, we just, I, we just don't do that. Yeah. Um, and thankfully that didn't get drug out a lot. Good. Um, but they, 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 they basically look at the, the, um, the sexual ethic itself and try and uh, tie it to the, the errors of the past of the ex gay narrative. And, but at that point, I don't really know how the argument works because there's just not really many, points of contact between besides just the, the, the belief in what marriage is and where sexual, where sexual expression belongs. Why, why theologically did you, did you stick with the traditional view when, when there are, when there are decent academic arguments uh, that allow people to, to hold otherwise? Uh, so again, I get, I never had a crisis of faith with that, Yeah, uh, but I've, read quite a bit and I just don't find the arguments compelling. Hmm. Um, I, I will, I've sometimes said on, in lectures and talks on the, on the topic that even if the Bible didn't have any of the references to actual same gender sexual behavior, that based off of Genesis one and two alone, we have enough to, we have enough to, to define what marriage is that the, 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 Genesis one and two are a charter of sorts for what the nuclear family looks like, for what the what family looks like, what um, how children come about, and what the relationship is between sexuality and childbearing and marriage. Like it's all it's all tied together, in a sense, in Genesis one and two. And so, um, yeah, I, I just don't find those arguments compelling. I mean, there's different there's different, all kinds of strategies, right? Each text yeah, has right, its own. Right genre and its own point that it was trying to make in that original context. And there's just been so many conflicting attempts to reinterpret those texts. And I don't 
find any of them compelling. Who? What would you say is the best, or, or not the best, but a great read arguing for the progressive interpretation uh, on a popular level? And what's a good um, uh, book on the conservative side of that same issue that you would recommend at a popular level? Yeah, so the, I mean, the, the the go-to popular level progressive book is Matthew Vines, yeah. a gay Christian. Um, Matthew Vines basically takes a lot of uh, James Brownson's book, Bible, Gender, Sexuality, <clears throat> and popularizes it. Yeah, Brownson's book is the the big daddy. It's the big daddy in the progressive conversation. Yeah, yeah. and then Matt Vines. Um, the best book uh, that I would recommend before reading Matt Vines or Brownson <laughs> is uh, Preston Sprinkle's book, People to Be Loved. Yeah. Um, the first half of that book is a very rigorous but very, very accessible um, examination of the different texts in the Bible that mention same gender sexuality. And he, and he is very, uh, he's very committed to rethinking as much as possible about these texts and asking many points, is it true? Is it possible that progressives are right on this text? Mm-hmm. And so he deals very fairly with uh, all the progressive arguments um, in the first half. And then the second half of the book is just great pastoral wisdom and what to do and how to think about the conversation today. So, so how would you answer that in terms of, uh, I would imagine there are some of our listeners hearing uh, who are, are in automatically. Um, they love it. Some probably are, are a little suspicious on the progressive side going, mm, I'm not sure, so sure this is a, a healthy development. Uh, but I would imagine there are more than a few who are on the conservative side who um, aren't sure how to make room for somebody who comes into the church and says, listen, I am in a celibate uh, partnership. Um, uh, you just got a new term right now. <laughs> Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I, I follow somebody on Twitter who, uh, he identifies as gay. He, um, has a, he, he has a, I, I don't know, friend, partner, something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're physically, um, celibate, but they're affectionate. They're physically yeah. affectionate. Yeah. And he just writes a lot about how uncomfortable that's, that makes churches. Yeah, so so the big question that you're asking is how can Christians who are sympathetic to an extent to what we're trying to do but just have this massive question mark about what that looks like? Yes. And what, advice, what, what advice do you have for, for them? Because I, 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 think, I think the days of the Nashville Statement and the Social Justice Statement, I think those are the last vestiges of a form of Christianity that's dying. I, th- so. I think that's a very true thing. I just don't, I don't think we're going to be yeah. making statements like this in, you know, 10 years. Well, yeah. And one of the things that was so incredible about Revoice, so his, so historically the past 20, you know, 10, 15 years, uh, is, you know, the spiritual friendship project has taken off. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, starting out, I think with Wes Wesley Hill's book, Washington waiting when that first came out in 2010. Yeah. Um, that, sort of signaled the emergence of a new kind of conversation about LGBT experience in conservative Christianity. Right. But one of the things that that conversation was criticized for, um, or at least just an observation that was made is it sounded really sad, Mm. like washed, but waiting 
and waiting and waiting and waiting and lonely <laughs> and tired and lonely again and isolated and attacked and under and it's like yeah, it was a very yeah. it was a very i mean that was real that was people's very real experience because yeah. they were making some very brave decisions to be open about their orientation while staying in conservative spaces right um with with no sanctioned relief yes exactly yeah. So one of the things that I, I, I really hope Revoice does, and I, I saw it and tasted it in the first conference we had, was a lot of joy. Mm. People, I mean, that room was packed with happy people. Mm. And the majority of the people who attended weren't on straight. Um, we, had, we had ways of, you know, on the questionnaires that we asked the attendees to fill out uh, to sort of read between the lines. Um, but yeah, it was just. But it was beautiful to see so much joy in in that room. Joy as people were getting to know each other and telling sto- their story and hearing how other people were making a costly obedience, um, living a costly obedience. And so I think I honestly feel like that's the future because um, that's that's what the gospel is. That's fruit of the that's fruit of the gospel. Joy, uh, the ability to hope in something that you can't see yet and still be and be happy about that. And so, yeah, I think documents like like the national statement, like the the social justice, those are all fear based, and there's no there's no fear in the gospel. Come on, preach, baby. <laughs> now um, we're we're doing another one, right? Um, in yeah. 2019. Yep, St. Louis, St. Louis again, June 5th through 8th. Um, details forthcoming. We're really excited. <laughs> Where where do, where can people find you? What's give me the name of your book again? So the name of the book is All But Invisible. Uh, you can go to all allbutinvisible dot com. Uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, it was with Zondervan. And it came out about ironically about a month after the National Statement. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Yeah. So there's that. Um, if you go to revoice dot us, um, that's our website. And yeah. uh, just changed. We just updated a little bit to get ready for the next one. Um, but yeah, we're very, very actively planning, uh, d- uh, developing the organization right now. I've got a board of directors. We're in the process of getting 501c3 status. And Nice. Nate, I'll tell you what, man. I am, <clears throat> I- I'm so grateful you take time um, to talk to me because th- this does uh, change a bit of the conversation. I mean, I think there are many of us who are trying to find ways through this that um, – that are are compassionate, loving, gracious. That 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 do rethink, you know, some of the very excellent points that are being brought up. Um, but but aren't sure how to do a third way other than here's just the 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 monolithic non-affirming category, and here's the monolithic affirming category, yep. and there doesn't seem to be room, um, a, a lot of room, uh, yep. both academically and theologically. For people who are saying, ah, I don't, I don't know that it's that, it's that simple. Yeah. I think there's nuance there that maybe we're not appreciating. So I, I really respect, really respect what you're doing. I, I am grateful for any voice that's coming along saying, Hey, there's another way to think about this. Yeah. And so very Thanks. grateful, man. Yeah. And, and, and I was, <clears throat> I follow my, my Twitter uh, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, uh I, the people I follow are just so all over the map, which is fantastic, right? I mean, I you could not, you yep. wouldn't put these people together in a room. And so <laughs> I was, I, I was 
I was eavesdropping on the revoice conversation mm-hmm. through at least a lot of criticism that was showing up from both the mm. progressive and conservative sides. And I have a, a friend of mine, Tyler, who um, uh, had gone and just said this was this was amazing. He's a pastor. Same mm-hmm. you know, same story. He was so incredibly blessed by it that yeah. that it was. Wow. You know, I really was excited to be able to to talk a little bit. So thank you, well, thank you, my man. friend. Yeah, I I hope. Um, well, there, there'll always be more to talk about in the future. But if you're if you're ever wanting a conversation partner, uh, I'm certainly always open. Um, uh, to our Vox listeners, boy, thanks for for tuning in. Thanks for being such an active, engaged uh, community of people. We're so blessed uh, to be a part of this and to have conversations like this. So as always, uh, check out Nate's book um, and Nate's stuff online. Uh, for us, thank you for all the support you give us, and we're grateful to be a little part of your life. So until next time, my brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give you peace. So until next time, thanks. Thanks.